Welcome to the GAC Files, a podcast about the people, issues and ideas driving Global Affairs Canada. Bienvenue au dossier d'AMC, un balado sur les gens, les enjeux et les idées qui animent Affaires mondiales Canada. And now, introducing your host, Global Affairs Canada's Deputy Minister of International Trade, John Hannaford. Voici votre animateur, John Hannaford, sous-ministre du Commerce international d'Affaires mondiales Canada. Bonjour à tous et toutes. C'est un plaisir d'avoir une autre conversation dans le contexte des de dossiers d'AMC. Aujourd'hui, nous avons une collègue pour, pour une discussion assez importante, je dirais. Um, I'm really thrilled to have my colleague uh, Daniel Kwan Watson agree to uh, chat with us today. Daniel, uh, as many of you will know, is the Deputy Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations in Northern Affairs Canada um, and uh, is is uh, a long-standing member of the public service and uh, a person with a real depth of experience in um, issues pertaining to uh, our, our relations with uh, Indigenous Canadians and also with issues uh, pertaining to um, Um, sort of Canada's place in the world, and I, we'll come back to that in in uh, in over the course of the conversation. Daniel, um, about well, several months ago now, um, made a public contribution to uh, our uh, discussions in Canada around issues of race, um, and uh, in, that that took the form of a, a letter uh, in response to some comments that had been made by a public commentator where Daniel shared his own experiences um, as somebody who is a Canadian of both Asian and European descent um, in issues of race and uh, some of the the uh, experiences that he has had as an individual. And I, I, Daniel, first of all, thank you very much for participating in this conversation. And thank you for the, the part you've played in our public discourse on this, because I, I really think it's so important that um, we have We have this discussion, we have it in an informed way, and I think your your letter and your participation here today really um, contribute to that. Uh, so I guess I, I just wanted, apart from thanking you for participating, I just wanted to get your kind of, uh, your thoughts as to where we are in Canada on issues of race, particularly when it comes to Asian uh, Canadians and the sort of experience that we have of anti-Asian racism, which has obviously been in the news in a number of forums in the last period of time. Ben, numéro un, merci beaucoup pour l'invitation. Un grand plaisir d'être ici, de parler avec toi et de parler avec tous tes collègues à l'intérieur euh, du ministère et surtout à ce sujet qui est une question très importante pour toutes sortes de raisons au Canada. But I think, you know, it's interesting. Um, the, if you look back at the history of Canada as we understand it since 1867, and of course in the particular world I work in, uh, we think of a lot of the steps long before 1867 that led to our history, but if we think of that part from 1867 on, uh, Asian people in what is now Canada uh, and Asian Canadians are a really important part of our history. 
And understanding what that has been and what it has led to and how it has evolved over time, I think is a really important part of understanding who we are as Canadians. And so, for example, uh, we all know the stories in the gold rush period and then later at the building of the railroad, large numbers of Chinese people coming to Canada, settling here. Uh, as time went on, a number of laws put in place that barred Asian Canadians from access to living in certain parts of cities, to professions, to being born in hospitals in a number of cases, to be buried in the same cemeteries. And over time, uh, a number of those things changed. And one of the things that I find fascinating is that uh, it'll be 100 years ago next year that my grandfather, Donald Kwan, arrived to Canada in 1912, and I have a copy of his head tax certificate signed by someone who would have been a colleague of ours on this uh, podcast, who was a federal public servant whose uh, title was Controller of Chinese Immigration. And what's fascinating to me is uh, he couldn't bring my grandmother over or my biological father to Canada because of the Exclusion Act that came into force a couple of months after he arrived in Victoria in 1923. But what's interesting, too, is that I became the first ever federal deputy minister of Chinese-Canadian ancestry. Uh, as you well know, those appointments are done on the advice of the prime minister. The Prime Minister of Canada signed that recommendation a couple hundred meters away from the Chamber of the House of Commons that passed and later repealed the Exclusion Act. And it says something about the voyage that we have taken. And it has been a, a long voyage. It has gone great distance. And the story has changed immensely. But it hasn't changed completely. And I think that one of the things that we have seen in the last year and a half is a resurgence of many of the sentiments that aren't always that far below the surface uh, of racism in Canada. And I wrote that letter because uh, the columnists had written and basically dismissing the concept that there was still any racism in Canada. And I thought, I'm not going to argue, uh, but I will express what my reality has been in my life. And I listed off a subset of some of the things that I'd gone through in my lifetime. And uh, as I note in letter, it was the first time I'd ever sort of done some serious math on it. Um, figured it was at least 10,000 times. In fact, I'm pretty, well, I'm quite certain that uh, it's much higher than that. But that was kind of the minimum number that I knew for sure uh, there was no way I could be very far off that particular number. And so in the letter, I uh, went through sort of a number of uh, sort of individual experiences, some quite banal, some quite spectacular, but all um, uh, centered around the same, same theme. And I think these are things that are way too invisible to way too many Canadians and sadly, way too familiar to another set of Canadians. And I think the challenge is to break down uh, the too familiarness on the one hand and the too invisible on the other hand as parts of those conversations. Yeah, and I, I, as I said at the outset, I think you being prepared to share your experience is obviously critical to that, that kind of um, 
dialogue that we collectively need to be having uh, or conversation that we collectively need to be having around issues of race. Now, as I, you've talked about sort of the specific history um, that and, you know, progress that we've made in some areas. But uh, in this podcast, we've we've talked about race in a few different contexts. I'm kind of interested uh, you know, the, the experience of Asian Canadians is obviously different than other discriminated against communities. There are obviously some commonalities there as well. And I, I just the specific situation of Asian Canadians, um, based on your own experience, how, do, how, how does this play itself out? And are there particular things that we should be sensitive about as we have this conversation, particular parts of the history and, and aspects of, of um, the experience of racism? Et en effet, c'est une très bonne question. Puis nous sommes en train, pour la toute première fois à l'intérieur de euh, la fonction publique, de trouver des données différenciées entre groupes. Parce que ce qui est clair, c'est que euh, le progrès de fonctionnaires canadiens africains dans des postes de direction, dans des postes de sous-ministres, dans euh, postes de, de plusieurs types de professions, n'a pas été euh, ce que c'est dans la proportion de la population. Lorsqu'on regarde par contre euh, beaucoup de euh, professions euh, où on regarde des Canadiens chinois, euh, Canadiens, Canadiens indiens euh, et autres asiatiques, on voit que la proportion est souvent très forte. Mais lorsqu'on sort de certains domaines, certains domaines, on se rend compte que cette présence n'est pas équivalente un peu partout. C'est très concentré euh, bien trop souvent. Ce qui est intéressant aussi au Canada, c'est la question du fait qu'il y a des gens qui sont euh, ici depuis 140 ans. Euh, 150 ans, les descendants de ceux qui sont arrivés pour construire le chemin de fer et pendant les décennies par la suite. Et il y a aussi une migration beaucoup plus récente. Donc, par exemple, lorsque moi j'étais à l'université, c'était extrêmement rare de voir des étudiants venant de la Chine. Aujourd'hui, on voit des, des dizaines de milliers d'étudiants qui viennent de la Chine et très souvent qui s'installent au Canada par la suite. Et ce genre d'immigration et cette expérience est très différente. Et donc, de voir euh, dans le contexte, par exemple, la comparaison des, euh, des grades universitaires, des, euh, des doctorats, des maîtrises, des baccalauréats dans des institutions à l'extérieur du Canada versus ce qui est à l'intérieur du Canada, et très souvent sur des bases qui sont pas mal difficiles à expliquer parfois. Uh, I was CHRO when we were having uh, the question, and it was kind of interesting. Um, you know, somebody had gone to Harvard and was asked to explain the equivalence of their degree to a Canadian degree. And a lot of people found that really ridiculous. But one of the questions was, okay, so then what is the basis of not asking that question about Harvard versus asking the question about any number of other places in China, in India, in any number of other countries, in Japan, uh, for that matter, in Germany. And it was interesting because the answer that most typically came back is, well, we just know. And what's interesting about that is, okay, well, if we just know, it's probably because we have some sense that we think we understand those places. Maybe we know people who went there, but isn't 
it equivalent to what is going on in other places? Why don't we just know? And when you think of the impact that it has on a person to not have their credentials recognized and to understand that, well, we're recognizing other credentials from outside of Canada at the drop of a hat. In fact, you know, there may be a certain view that if you go to certain institutions in the UK or the US, well, maybe that's even better than the University of Saskatchewan. I don't know. But um, do we have the same sense that that could possibly be true in Japan, in China, in India, in any number of other places? And just statistically, it has to be true that uh, uh, there are enormous equivalencies uh, between those institutions and our own. But if we don't know that, if we haven't thought about that, it's an interesting thing about why we automatically say, well, I'm not going to bother checking equivalency with Harvard or Oxford. But the second that you go to the best university there is in Japan, the best university there is in China, the best university there is in India, um, it might as well be Selkirk College. And we'll check through and we'll see uh, if you're you're anywhere near. And we lose an awful lot because of that. Uh, the individuals lose an awful lot. But we as a public service and an institution lose enormous amounts of time and effort because we haven't actually thought that through. And, you know, we can't afford to lose these people. We can't afford to lose those skills. Yeah, it's, a, it's just dead right. It's, it's, it, it, you you see you sort of broached the the topic of our place in the world and how we kind of fit our own uh, policy agendas and our, our our implicit biases into our interactions with that broader world. And I, I was struck when I was reading your your letter about some of the experiences that you had in international settings, and it's particularly relevant, obviously, for the audience of this podcast when we think about how. We represent ourselves abroad, uh, the context in which we operate, and you know you're, you're, you, you've had an awful lot of experience uh, representing Canada in a variety of different settings. And uh, you, you noted one story with respect to the UN, but also a series of issues uh, around the border. I'm kind of interested as to uh, you know observations you would have that would be particularly relevant to GAC employees as we think about how we how we serve our functions, uh, both here and abroad, and the sort of how we make decisions as to, you know, how we represent ourselves abroad. Yeah, I think that is a, a great question. I think I've spent a lot of my career as, you know, either the only person or one of the only people who looks like me or who looks different than the rest of the people in the room. And when that happens, uh, you become aware of it. So I remember when I was on the advanced leadership program and we're going around as a group of um, federal assistant deputy ministers, virtually every single one of us. And the number of times I got stopped when I was with the group in Canadian missions abroad and said, oh, this is only for Canadians or uh, no, this is only for the group of leaders. And it you know, it didn't happen a couple of times. It happened an awful lot of times. And I think that, um, you know, the other thing that I noted when I was in a lot of those rooms, and this isn't unique to GAC, but I always found it really interesting because I did spend a lot of time dealing on the elimination of racial discrimination and some different pieces. The number of people who looked anything like me in any of those meetings, in any of those delegations was usually about zero. And I, I would often think um, you know, when I would get the surprised looks that I would get from other delegations, oh, you're 
wait a minute, you're with the Canadian delegation? Um, they would be a little surprised. And the question for me, and this isn't about the quality of the individuals who are there. They're great people. I have nothing but fantastic things to say about each and every one of the missions I've ever been to. Been brilliantly supported by them. Can't believe the conditions they often work under. Can't believe some of the people they have to put up with who, you know, often Canadians who are down there expecting things of our missions that, frankly, they probably ought not to be expecting. But with a smile and great grace, uh, people continue to deliver those things. But would these other people know if they hadn't been to Canada by looking at us, what we look like at home? Um, what does it take so that it's not a surprise that I'm a Canadian? What would it take that it's a, not a surprise that, in fact, I'm a Canadian deputy minister? Uh, one of the things that I sort of said to um, in my letter was this point when somebody asked me who was, in fact, an immigrant to, to Canada uh, here on a student visa, uh, had asked me the question, well, what do you do for a living? And I said, I work for the government of Canada. And she just laughed, just laughed outright. He said, well, how can you work for that? You're not even a real Canadian. And it's an interesting thing to me about when we show ourselves to the world, um, do we show what we are like at home or do we have a uh, presence there that says all of the right things? And I'll be clear too, our actions, I think, are very loud and very strong and often very courageous and i salute the people to do that but there is something about the difference between doing and saying and that's something that i think that we need to continue to to work with uh, GAC is not the only place in the government of canada that needs to think about that and think of the impact um, we have plenty of other institutions including the one for which i'm a deputy minister where far too few indigenous people are in the roles that we need to have them in and that impact of that in terms of other people deciding whether or not they think there's really a place for them in Canada's public service is influenced heavily by who is there et peut-être encore plus important par qui est-ce qui ne l'est pas. Et donc, ce serait, je pense, la, la perspective que j'aurais là-dessus, rien que d'énormes respects pour les employés qui ont appuyé, qui sont là, qui livrent des messages, qui développent des messages, mais il y a un aspect important quant au visage, et j'utilise le mot euh, par exprès, que démontre le Canada au reste du monde. Absolument, ça c'est absolument correct. Peut-être on peut discuter un peu de votre expérience comme sous-ministre et les, les politiques qui sont plus utiles pour traiter ce type de problème, de ce type de racisme et des questions de représentation et de, de euh, recrutement. In your experience, what what's what has worked particularly well? Because you you were saying we we have made some progress here, and how what what's been the kind of basis for that, and what more can we be doing in, within the public service generally? Mm -hmm. Non, c'est une très bonne question. Je pense que numéro un, il faut reconnaître qu'on a déjà fait des changements extraordinairement importants. Euh, J'ai commencé ma carrière fédérale il y a 32 ans. 1989, et à l'époque, c'était environ 7 ou 8 des EX dans la fonction publique qui étaient des femmes. Et c'était très rare, et 
les gens se posaient la question, est-ce que c'est vraiment possible? C'était comme une expérience sociale qu'on faisait pour voir si ça pouvait fonctionner. Je me souviens en début de carrière, euh, j'allais chercher un poste, puis on me l'avait offert, puis un des vieux messieurs qui était tout près de la retraite en 1989, donc il a probablement commencé en 1955 ou quelque chose comme ça, m'avait dit « Daniel, fais attention, ton gestionnaire va être une femme et ça, ça ne peut pas aider à ta carrière. » Puis, je ne sais pas exactement ce qu'il imaginait avec le problème, mais c'était normal. C'était quelque chose qu'on entendait souvent. Puis aujourd'hui, si je demandais à quelconque fonctionnaire qui est ici depuis dix ans, disons, combien de gestionnaires, combien de directrices que vous avez eues qui sont des femmes, numéro un, on serait insulté que je pose la question. On le trouverait absolument ridicule et euh, offensive que, que je pose la question. Mais l'autre affaire, les gens devraient penser. Parce que ben, je n'ai jamais même pas pensé à ça. J'ai mes directeurs, j'ai mes directrices, je n'ai jamais compté. On sait comment faire ce degré de changement. Mais euh, il faut se poser la question aujourd'hui, à l'intérieur de nos organismes, si on employait un Canadien africain, un Canadien chinois, un Canadien indien, une personne autochtone, est-ce que ce serait la toute première fois dans l'histoire de cette organisation qu'une telle personne comblerait ce poste? And you know, you think about this. We watched the Jackie Robinson story, 1947, and the breaking of the color barrier in Major League Baseball. We broke that barrier in 2020 in the Canadian Federal Public Service Deputy Minister Community for Black Deputy Ministers. We broke it in 2009 with Chinese Canadian Deputy Ministers. You know, 60 years after the NHL, Major League Baseball, and all these other entities did this, and so. What we've had so far, in my experience, is some areas where we have made some significant strides. We have actually developed people, we've had programs, but by and large, we haven't done it on an industrial scale. And what I mean by that is we've had sort of a, a, a craftsperson approach to either. We find individuals, we support them, uh, we mentor them, we guide them, and many of those people have done very well. But we need to actually get to a point where it becomes normal that people appear in different positions in the proportion that they exist in the population. And so it's not a first to uh, be Yasmin Laroche and to be the deputy minister uh, with a visible disability who is the first one, and these are her words, uh, not mine, uh, that in, uh, Gina Wilson is not the first indigenous uh, person to be a deputy minister, that I'm not the first Chinese-Canadian deputy minister, that Caroline Xavier isn't the first black. We're in the world of firsts. All of those firsts are still currently employed in the federal public service. So I ask people to do three questions. Uh, number one, uh, where has our service to Canada and Canadians not bring as strong as it should, not been as good as it should because of who we chose not to bring to the table? Number two, who are we consistently not attracting and not retaining and why? And number three is what is it that is going on in our inside our organizations that makes it difficult or impossible? for those people that we should be recruiting to join, to stay, or to encourage others to do the same. 
And I think if we say, well, uh, you know, my work is just fine. It doesn't make any difference who I do or don't have the, tab have the table. I think if we say, well, I'm not sure who isn't here or why they're not here, but it's not really a problem. And I think is, well, maybe stuff's going on in my organization, but I don't know about it. I can't see it. And so as far as I'm concerned, it's not really an issue. We're never going to get anywhere on these fronts. But that has some consequences for us as institutions. Notre premier devoir, c'est de savoir ce sont quoi les enjeux auxquels nous faisons face au nom des, du Canada, des Canadiens, des Canadiennes. Et sans avoir des gens qui peuvent nous dire, voici les enjeux, voici les nuances que vous avez manquées, voici ce dont nous devrions nous concentrer dessus, on répondra aux mauvaises questions, numéro un. Numéro deux, la prise de décision, distincte de l'analyse des problèmes. Si nous n'avons pas les gens qui ont ces connexions avec l'ensemble de ces réalités, l'ensemble de ces nuances, l'ensemble de ces éléments de notre société que nous ne voyons pas dans nos équipes sans ces personnes-là, on prendra des décisions qui sont pires que les autres. And then the final step is that if you don't have, when you're delivering, And at the end of the day, government is in the business of delivering, making things different in practical ways for Canada, Canadians and those that we serve. If we don't have the connections to understand where we're missing the mark, how we're missing the mark, why we're missing the mark or why we're doing well for that matter, again, we do worse delivery than we otherwise would. And so to me, I think we have to have that conversation. For a long time, we've treated diversity as though the system just fine, thank you very much. It's doing very well, but it is unfortunate that we've left some other folks by the wayside. So as a charitable act, you know, next time the bus comes around, we'll sort of let people on the bus and they can do the same ride. What I'm saying, and I think what um, I put into my executives' uh, performance requirements and agreements for this year is they have to answer those three questions. And I think it's critically important because if we think that we haven't missed anything because of who we haven't had the table, I think that's one of the most dangerous things we could do. I'll give you one quick example. I ran a panel where I had three seasoned executives come and answer the first question of that, which is where had they underserved Canada and Canadians because of who they hadn't had at the table. And an item that was completely obvious to me, the second it was said came up, this woman who was on the panel said, the way we deal with family. And I was a little intrigued at first. And she said, you know, our collective agreements are structured to find part-time work abhorrent. And, um, you know, often the unions have argued, well, if employer wants part-time work, it's just because they're trying to cut wages and benefits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And an employer says, uh, uh, you know, the employers often say, oh, it's too complicated, it's too difficult, why do I want to have all that headache? But as this person pointed out, in dealing with family, It is a raw fact that women have uh, been forced to deal with a different set of family responsibilities at different points in time in their career than men do en masse. And that the only way that those women can effectively manage the different um, uh, responsibilities is to have at least as an option to consider the possibility of part-time work. And what she said is, if at the very outset we had had the right women in the right places on the bargaining agent side and the right women in the right places on the employer side, we would not have treated um, uh, part-time work as though it were a communicable disease. 
we would have treated it as something that was simply a necessary reality that allowed us to bring people into the labor force that we otherwise were excluding, or alternately, we weren't getting nearly as much out of them as we could while they were here because they were forced to deal with other challenges outside. To me, that's a perfect example of how the way that we see the world is shaped by whose eyes we see it through and whose voices we listen to or don't listen to while we're dealing with it. So to me, those are some of the things that I think we need to deal with uh, in our institutions to, to focus on what these questions are and what are we losing because of what we haven't done. Well, look, Daniel, thank you very much. Um, I uh, thank you on a number of levels. First of all, thank you for your leadership on this set of issues um, in Canada and the public service. I think it's, as I said at the outset, I think it really is critically important. And I think you've contributed to a much more informed discussion around issues of anti-Asian uh, racism in our society. And I want to thank you for the, those concluding remarks, because I, I think Bringing this down to um, a very practical level as to what the cost is of the status quo, I think is critically important too, because it, it, these can be very abstract discussions in some ways. And I, I, uh, I think your letter uh, concretized um, your experience, and I think those questions uh, force us as leaders to think through, you know, what the implications are of maintaining a, a situation that that needs to change. So thank you very, very much. Um, it's a pleasure to get a chance to, to explore these issues with you, and uh, we'll, we'll talk again soon. Un très grand plaisir, et à la prochaine. À la prochaine. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us for future episodes of The GAC Files, a podcast about the people, issues, and ideas driving Global Affairs Canada. Don't forget to join the conversation online using hashtag GAC Files. Merci d'avoir écouté le balado et nous espérons que vous vous joindrez à nous pour les épisodes futurs des dossiers d'AMC. Un balado sur les gens, les enjeux et les idées qui animent Affaires mondiales Canada. N'oubliez pas de vous joindre à la conversation en ligne en utilisant le hashtag dossier d'AMC. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future topics or guests, please send us an email at extott-ldce at international.gc.ca. Si vous avez des commentaires ou des suggestions concernant des sujets futurs ou des nouveaux invités, vous pouvez communiquer avec nous par courriel à l'adresse extott-ldce à commercial international.gc.ca. <musique>